Hey everyone, welcome to this mini podcast project series where we are going to go down the rabbit hole of ballet and the ballet wallets. For those who don't know, Ballet, which started in 2019, is a U.S. company behind the world's first multi-currency, non-electronic, physical crypto wallet. My name is Eric, and I am part of the marketing team here at Ballet, and I'll be chatting with Ballet's founder and CEO, Bobby Lee, and all things Ballet. From how it all started, to the inspiration behind it, from design to inception, what makes it secure and different from hardware wallets, and what the future looks like for Ballet and crypto wallets in general. We're excited to bring this story to you all, so sit back and enjoy the conversation we have with Bobby Lee. And back on the podcast of the story behind Ballet podcast series, part five of the podcast series, we're back here with Bobby Lee. This time we're going to be talking about security, uh, security, safety, trust, obviously the biggest, um, biggest issue around crypto for a lot of people. Uh, and many, and amongst many crypto newcomers that want to come into the space uh, and get a feel for what's going on. Security is always at the top of mind for most people. With the Ballet wallets, of course, with any wallets, you know, security is of the utmost important point. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the security of the Ballet wallets and trust in general and what Bobby thinks of trust in general. So, Bobby, welcome back. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm excited to talk about security. So, so let me start off this way. Um, the reason security is such an important part, an important topic for cryptocurrency is that this is a new thing. Meaning if you th think about human history, think about even the advent of computing, you know, since the 1950s and 60s and the advent personal computer in the 80s and 90s and now the internet, the commercial internet, and then explosion of internet and smartphones in the last 20 years. The notion of digital security is very, very new. The idea that we as individuals have to learn to protect digital private keys, passwords, this is a relatively new thing. It's only in the last 10 years, 20 years. Uh, in the old days, you know, when if you had one of those Hotmail accounts in the late 90s, uh, no one really bothered to go and hack your account back then. But these days, you know, whether it's online banking, credit cards, or other websites, uh, especially crypto websites, uh, there's a lot of hacking. People are trying to steal your accounts, log into your accounts, and so on. So this is becoming a bigger issue, and and this is a new skill set, right? Humans are just not evolved to deal with the protection of digital private keys. So that's why uh, it's been such a such a challenge for the people, I think. Yeah, like I said before, you know, a lot of accounts these days, even over the past 10 years, personal information is becoming, or anyone's personal information is almost accessible to any online website uh, out there on the internet. And with crypto, obviously now you're putting your own sacred money, your own sacred money value on the internet. So uh, I want to start off with a quote from a blog piece that you put out last year. And that blog piece is titled, Should You Trust Ballet? Should you trust anyone? And the quote goes, there is no such thing as a trustless wallet provider. Yes, let me repeat, whatever crypto wallet you're using, whether it's a desktop app, mobile app, hardware wallet, you implicitly have to trust the vendor and or maker. In the end, people tend to verify things to the extent that they're comfortable with because every subsequent decimal percentage of verification gets exponentially more difficult. With that quote and with that line in your blog, 
Tell me, what do you think makes users not realize this? And also, how users actually need to trust any crypto wallet hardware or software that they use? Well, well first of all, the, the, the education level of, of, the, of the people in the world has a high degree of variance. So, you know, so there are people like me who've been in crypto for 10 years who, who have a computer science degree, who consider themselves geeks and nerds by nature. We, we have, you know, I, I definitely have done my, my uh, homework in terms of understanding the technologies, the software and so on. And then the people who are even more extreme than me, who have run every version of software, who have inspected every line of open source, who have really looked at it with keen eyes and so on and so forth. And then there are people, and there are many, many more people who are less sophisticated than I. So, so the point is, we many people have gotten complacent, and uh, when we evaluate products, whether it's whether it's real life products, uh, consumer products, or whether it's cryptocurrency, hardware, wallet products, we implicitly defer judgment to quote unquote experts, and we trust their judgment. If they think it's safe, if they say it's safe, if there's a seal of endorsement, then, oh, this must be safe. So my, the, the point I'm trying to make is that safety and security, a lot of times people take a shortcut and they don't verify it for themselves. And then they end up using a service or product that they consider to be safe, not because they've done their own due diligence, uh, but rather because they, they're trusting a friend or the reputation of an organization or a group of people who have endorsed a product or a service. So this is the first level of trust. You're, you're trusting the referral. You're trusting the the sort of uh, implicitly the 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 value or the security of something based on the reputation. And in in some sense, it's lazy. In a different sense, it's inevitable because you know obviously. You know, when you go buy something in a convenience store or buy some fruits from a from a fruit stand, you, you have to trust the source and so on and so forth. Even if you buy a, a soft drink at a convenience store, you have to trust that the supply chain manufacturing that soft drink is, is inherently safer to drink and there's been no added poison or anything like that, right? So my point is, um, in life, as we go about our day, uh, we, we trust a lot of things. And sometimes... Uh, Con, con men, you know, would would take advantage of that. Fraudsters and con men would take advantage of that and betray our trust, and that's how people get tricked. Uh, so, so it's it's a it's a human problem, right? The notion of needing trust yet forgetting that we need trust. So it's a human problem all over the world. Do you think in human nature in a human society, from what we've grown up with? Do you think there's anything that is really considered purely trustless? Not, not really. So any, so aside from yourself, right? Anything that's outside of you and your body, uh, you're trusting, you're trusting something. Even if you cook a meal at home, and you say I'm gonna eat healthy, and be safe, and cook a meal at home, you're implicitly trusting the quality of the ingredients you're bringing home, whether it's the rice, the meat, and so on. Because you can't, like let's say pork, right? People say you have to cook pork really well well done so that so there's no uh, parasites, tapeworms in it. You don't get, uh, you don't get sick, right? Uh, 
you you gotta trust it, right? Even with beef or meat, you know, there's there's been uh, e what, what's a what's a virus E. coli? I don't know whatever bacteria virus people get sick with that. You have to trust the source, lettuce, you know, uh, rice, you know. So and you, because you're not gonna have a microscope in your kitchen trying to go in and look at look for the parasites and the tapeworms, right? Uh, even if you did have a microscope, do you have the skills to go look at it and identify that properly, right? So. Now, thankfully, you know, food safety is is very well thought out. You know, these days people don't get sick from eating contaminated pork much anymore compared to centuries ago, right? So my, my point is that uh, I don't care if it's food. I don't care if it's uh, even like with recent COVID, you know, people uh, getting disinfectant wipes, uh, antibacterial hand uh, sanitizers. You know, when you buy these products to clean things, you're implicitly trusting the product that you're buying has the alcohol content, has the disinfectant uh, properties that it claims to have on the packaging. Otherwise, you're not you're not really if, if you're not really wiping it down, you're not really cleaning it. Does, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. When you when you buy face masks, when you wear them, you're implicitly trusting the make the maker of the face mask that the protection is really affording you. Uh, guard against uh, the coronavirus, mm -hmm. right? So, so my point is that the world is full of trust. Whether you take a take a Uber, you know, trusting the driver and the car safety. Whether you take a plane ride, you're trusting the pilot. You're trusting the airline to deliver you safely to that location. And statistically, it's not foolproof, right? Statistically, not ev every flight mile is 100% safe, right? You're you're taking a risk. Everything you crossing the street. People, this is a common expression. You take a risk when you cross the street, right? There, there are accidents, people get run over, hit by bikes, and so on and so forth, right? So I'm not trying to say the world we live in is a dangerous place, but, but don't get complacent. Realize where you're placing the trust. And, and this goes from you know using a crypto wallet. I don't care if it's a hot wallet, a mobile wallet, or a hardware wallet, or even an exchange. You're storing your coins on a custodial exchange uh, compared to trusting things in regular life and what we're seeing at ballet is that for all intents and purposes i think leaving your coins on an exchange is is a bad idea not just for the need to trust exchange in managing the custody of the coins uh and also because um uh there, there's hacking you know there's a, a t account hacking there's identity theft uh, there's a lot of horror stories about people leaving their coins on exchanges um, it's just a matter of time whether you're going to get bitten by that. Uh, so, so the best bet, the best way truly is to spread your eggs in different baskets. Baskets. Yeah. <clears throat> the word trust and trustless can be very vague and open-ended, and you can even, I mean, I think we can even probably spend like an hour or a few hours just talking about this topic. It's a very philosophical topic. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to. You mentioned trustless. Let me let me say this. So. Recently, I was having a conversation with uh, with a Bitcoin OG, an expert, uh, and we we're arguing, we we're discussing, and sort of arguing back and forth. Right, I'm saying what's the best hardware wallet, and he claims this so and so hardware wallet is trustless, and I'm like, no, it's mm -hmm. not, because because even even if the so-called firmware is open source, and you, you have to have someone go verify the firmware, because open source software or firmware doesn't imply it's bug free. And the fact that all the firmware and chips out there have had routine firmware updates t 
tells me that the past versions of the firmware have had bugs and security risks, security holes, whether you call them zero-day exploits or whatever common bugs, right? Zero, you know, those buffer overflow bugs or other backdoors and stuff like that. Some are, most are unintentional, maybe some are intentional, planted by the NSA or whatever. So th the point is, the point is that even if it's open source, it's not safe. And even if it's open source, it doesn't mean that you have the capability to review the software to, to, to find the bugs. Many people can stare at, like there are great software out there that's clearly buggy, but if I show it to even experts, it's very hard for them to tell there's a bug here in the open source software. Mm -hmm. So that's one avenue. The other avenue is that even if the software has, has been vetted and vetted by multiple people, by the way, by the way, when you vet the software by multiple people, you're implicitly trusting these people to tell you the software is safe, mm. right? That's already a layer of trust. Now you have the software that's supposed to be kosher, and then the question is you have a device. How do you know the device is running your software firmware? Well, they claim you can install it yourself, but then what about the bootloader? What if the bootloader is doing shenanigans mm. and switching things out or adding a backdoor, right? In, in computer science class at Stanford, I remember very distinctly, uh, my, my professor taught us, it's you can always have a compiler that inserts a backdoor when it compiles a software, right? You, you can have a clean software and you compile it into runtime or into, into executable, right? And the now again, I'm speaking very geek to a audience of people who, who've taken compiler classes and computer science classes. A compiler can install, install a backdoor into the software. Mm -hmm even the source code doesn't have it. And then, well, how do you check the compiler? Well, the compiler itself has to be compiled. So the compiler itself has a source code, which can also be stripped of the backdoor, yet when it gets compiled for the first time, it will have the backdoor in it, right? So this, this is a very, it's a theoretical idea, but it's, it's, you cannot prove that the compiler is not inserting a, back, uh, a backdoor patch into a piece of software. So that's why, that's why even if you compile the firmware yourself, you know, if you if you compile the bootloader yourself, how do you load it into the chip? You don't have microscopes, you didn't make the chip yourself, you didn't make the board, you didn't make the, the RAM and the power, all, all the different chips that go into the device, right? You didn't make it. You're implicitly trusting the manufacturing, whether it's TSMC, whether it's Intel, whether it's all these other chip manufacturers and the people do the PCB boards, right? Circuitry boards. And all that stuff, that, that whole layer, you're trusting people. I'm not saying they're, they're bad people or evil, but but don't ever get confused to think that that's trustless. It's not. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, the word trustless definitely does have a, a wide varying degree of different meanings, right? And I think even one can make the argument for for, for Bitcoin itself, right? I, I think in, in Bitcoin, it, even though, you know, the industry likes to, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, evangelize how Bitcoin is uh, trustless, uh, but even you can make the argument saying that you need to trust the nodes, exactly. the miners, uh, exactly, even down to like the Bitcoin core code base itself. Yeah, um, and I like your example about um, how you know you can even get down to to, to the most minuscule of trustless um, of self control, like eating healthy, for example. Right, there is no guarantee that you're going to be healthy just by if you're eating healthy. I mean, I know you know some examples of people my friends and families that have eaten healthy and have gotten cancer, right? The, like, yeah, exactly. Diseases yeah, and yeah. cancer like this comes out of nowhere. And it, yeah, there's a lot of environmental factors, not just the food. Exactly. Um, 
I know mentioned you, you mentioned before to me one time about achievable security and how this is actually very um, closely related to people's ability to use crypto wallets. Can you explain yeah. on that? Yeah, yeah. So, so the term I have to give credit to Adam Back, Doctor Adam Back, uh, CEO of Blockstream. He's uh, one of the forefathers of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. He invented the the proof of work. Uh, algorithm or proof of work concept prior to Bitcoin and he's obviously mentioned in the Bitcoin white paper so so Adam back I met him at a conference he he looked at our ballet wallets um, and and he made the point that what's great about ballet wallets is the, the concept of achievable security and, and and he really crystallized it for me and, I, and it's a it's an amazing topic basically you have security right you, you think about security of, of wallets whether it's harder wallets or whatever kind of wallets you may have something that's very high security, but yet if the user of the device, the user of the product doesn't have the know-how, then they can't achieve that high level of security. Okay, so that's the that's the issue we have, right? So, so what matters in the end is a combination of what the user is able to do combined with what's what's inside native in the in the device and product and it's the lower of the two it's a common denominator meaning it's that it's that level of achievable security in other words if you have a device so-called that's super safe with all the complex interactions and passwords and safety checks and blah 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 but if the common user cannot adequately use all of that properly without getting themselves into uh, making mistakes then the actual achievable security is very, very low. So what we've done with ballet is to lower the common denominator and say, let's make it very simple so you can't screw it up and yet gave you decent security because it's fundamentally an offline cold storage wallet. So our product, ballet, has a very decent and high level of achievable security. And that's the, that's the, that's the end goal here because we want it, all that matters is what's achievable versus what's theoretical security, right? So an example is this. Uh, I'll give you an example. A bicycle and a car and a fighter jet. What's the fastest? Fighter jet. A fighter jet is fastest. They can go Mach 3, Mach 5, meaning several times the speed of sound. And a car is certainly driving several, you know, multiple kilometers or miles per hour up to 100 or more, right? Uh, but a bicycle can only go so fast. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, let's say if we were to measure speed for these three different vehicles, a bicycle, a car, and a fighter jet, in the end, for you and me, Eric, what matters is achievable level, achievable level of speed. You and I can both ride a bicycle. I drive a car. I don't know whether you drive a car, but certainly I can tell you that I don't, fly a fighter jet. So if you give me a fighter jet and you, Eric, get in a bicycle, it's very likely you'll be faster than me. A you riding a bicycle will be faster than me in a fighter jet because I have no idea how to operate that fighter jet. Mm -hmm. At best, maybe I'm rolling down the tarmac mm -hmm. and a fast bicyclist will, will be faster than that. And same thing with a car. Th does that make sense? Yeah. Certainly, a fast car can outrun a, a fighter jet if the if the pilot has no idea what they're doing. It's like it's like if you put the average person in the cockpit of a fighter jet, I mean, it, 
the, it, it's not yeah. safe nor is it fast. Nobody would know like <laughs> what, what buttons to push, what protocols to hit. Exactly. How to ignite the engine. Exactly. And that's what I compare. Like, so that analogy is what's happening in the world. There's all these experts, think of these advanced pilots saying, oh, you should buy this transportation because this is the fastest. It's the safest. It's got the ejection seat. I'm talking about these fighter jets, right? Mm -hmm. It's got missiles to protect you. You know, you can fire missiles at enemies, right? And then some people are actually buying, buying these fancy, fancy fighter jets and they have no idea how to use it and they end up crashing and killing themselves. So the idea is they end up misusing a crypto wallet and losing funds. I've seen these examples in real life. I've seen my friends, my friends of friends, lose millions and millions of dollars from misusing hardware wallets. And it, it's a it's terrible, terrible tragedy, and uh, you know it's terrible tragedy and uh, tragedy, and it's why I created Ballet to solve that problem to really bring uh, easy, safe cold storage to regular people. So with the Ballet wallet, achievable security is a lot more attainable at a higher level. Um, but for the Ballet wallet, you know, in general. Whenever you're gonna go go across the roadshows and conferences, explaining the ballet wallet, um, what makes it secure? Well, let's get into that topic now. Um, well, I know the ballet wallet utilizes the BIP thirty eight technology. A lot of people don't know the BIP thirty eight technology. Instead, they're probably more familiar with BIP thirty nine, uh, which is the one where you know it requires you to write down your twelve or 24, 24 word mnemonic yeah. code, and then talk about how the BIP thirty eight is used in the patent pending two-factor key generation it's actually process. patented already patented already yeah patented pat the patented two-factor key generation process and basically for the audience who doesn't know um this is the process that allows the ballet company <coughs> and the ballet walls to pre-generate pre-generate pre two different parts of the 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 the, 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 the private key but um yeah I'll, I'll let you speak on that so so at the outset, what makes Ballet Wallet safe is, um, is a notion that we're delivering a wallet that's fundamentally offline cold storage. So that's the most important part. So if you think about wallets in general, uh, I like to think of it as, as a three-tier pyramid. At the very base layer, the widest layer, where the most people and the most cryptos are stored are on custodial services, custodial exchanges, so what I'm trying to say is most people, the vast majority of coins are actually stored by people on these, on these uh, exchanges, websites, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, I used to operate an exchange, right? BTCC, BTC China. So many people stored their crypto with us. Um, it's always, I, I've always been hesitant about that because uh, there's always risk, you know, having run an exchange, I know how difficult it is to keep it safe and so on and then we've seen empty gox we've seen other exchanges get hacked we've seen people accounts getting hacked so but, but in any case that's a mass vast majority okay custodial services and in the middle part of the of the pyramid is what i call hot wallets these are wallets run on your mobile phones on your desktop computer where the private keys are actually live on the device and the device is connected on the internet now the private keys in a file may be encrypted but the reality is if hackers get access to that file, they can try to brute force through the encryption because uh, once, once the file is offline in their possession, they have unlimited amount of time and resources to hack through and break out your crypto, 
cryptocurrency private keys. At the very top of the pyramid is the safest, is what I call cold storage. So these are devices, um, either electronic devices or maybe even a piece of paper or stainless steel card where you etch down the private keys or the, or the seed phrases, where the essential essence of the private key is completely offline, removed from online connection, and that's why they call it cold storage. It's, it's air-gapped and offline. So that's the three tiers. Custodial storage at the bottom. In the middle is the hot wallets, more convenient, but you still have access to your private keys, whereas in the custodial example, you don't have access to your private keys. And at the very top, you know, the gold standard is cold storage. Not only do you have access to your private keys, but they're kept offline. That's why hackers cannot get to it. So Ballet delivers that cold storage product. And that's fundamentally what makes Ballet safe. Now, um, furthermore, uh, what's, what's, what's great about Ballet is not that it's just safe because of cold storage, but because it's easy to use. And the, the, the way we deliver easy to use, by the way, we, we think we're the number one easiest to use cold storage wallet out there by far. And the reason we're easiest to use is because our wallet is ready to go. There's no complicated or lengthy setup process at all, right? So, so that's, the, that's the essence of, of the Ballet uh, Real Series cryptocurrency wallet. And what you talked about, the 2FKG and all that, those are just techniques and technologies in a manufacturing process in the underlying thing. And you mentioned BIP38. BIP38 is a, is a Bitcoin standard. From the early from early last decade, I think it's at least uh, eight or nine years old. It's invented, uh, created by Michael Caldwell, the inventor creator of the Casatius physical Bitcoin. Uh, BIP thirty eight is a precursor to BIP thirty nine. All these different BIPs are Bitcoin standards. So what what you mentioned about the private uh, the seed phrases is actually BIP thirty nine seed phrases, and then it's paired with BIP forty four which is what they call the HD wallet. It stands for, HD is not like HDTV high definition, but rather it stands for this very complicated two word acronym called Hierarchical uh, Definitive Wallet. Hierarchical Definitive. I think it's uh, deterministic. Deterministic, sorry, you're right. Hierarchical Deterministic Wallet. So uh, deterministic means that from a single root master private key, you can deterministically generate all the sub keys for all the different coins and you can have multiple addresses per coin type, um, unlimited amount, and hierarchical because it's, it's in a hierarchical order. There's a parent, there's a grandparent, a parent, a child, and a you know, sibling, blah, 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 all that stuff. So uh, thank you for correcting the, the acronym, hierarchical uh, deterministic wallet. So it's paired with the seed phrase technology, which is used for people, allows for people to write down simple English words that correspond to the to the 2048-bit master root key. And with the BIP39, actually, the Ballet Wallets can import BIP39 private keys. Is yeah, we, yeah, we, our, our app and our wallet, uh, obviously, so, 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 so take a step back. So why do I talk about these BIP standards? It's very important because it's important that your wallet and the technology uses an industry standard so that you're not locked in by the vendor. In other words, you, don't, you never want to use a solution that is proprietary to the vendor, because in that case, you're relying on the vendor and the company to provide you the service and the hardware and the software, and they lock you in, okay? With Ballet, we're proud to use the industry open source standard, BIP38. It's a precursor to BIP39. In some ways, BIP39 
is better and more advanced and more complex, but in many ways, BIP38 is the original standard for how uh, private keys are encrypted and so on and so forth. And it's a well-tested standard. It's been out there for a long time. It has not been hacked. It has not been brute forced. It's, a very, uh, it's very well trusted uh, in the ecosystem. Now, it just turns out not many people use it, right? BIP39, BIP44 has become much more popular. And because of that, for that reason, our software also supports the importing of BIP39 seed phrases so that you can load in. If, if you have, if you store your crypto on other BIP39 slash 44 wallets, uh, you can easily load those coins into Ballet in the one fell swoop by typing in those 12 or 24 word combinations. And then we'll, we'll import them for you very quickly and easily. So Ballet does support that. What's the biggest challenge in explaining the security of the ballet walls to people? The, the, big, the biggest challenge is, is back to the concept of achievable security, right? If, if, the, if, the person, if, the, if the person I'm talking with, their knowledge level of security is not as high as mine, then I have to sort of um, choose a conversation and vocabulary where I can help them understand it. Because I, I designed the ballet wallets, the, the, the fundamental architecture and the technology we use with, with I've used, you know, back then it was, I guess, eight, today's already 10 years, but back then it was eight years of experience mm. of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. With, with that uh, accumulation of experience, we designed the ballet wallet architecture to be very safe and reliable and easy to use, right? So, however, if I were to meet someone and explain to them what's great about ballet, it's very hard. It's actually a very hard task for me to condense that knowledge and experience and explain it in layman terms. So we choose to focus on a few points. We talked about earlier uh, the fact that ballet is uh, fundamentally a offline cold storage wallet. It fundamentally uses a an industry standard protocol BIP 38 so it's non-proprietary and it's open source for future compatibility and thirdly it's ready to go there's no setup process so uh, people can use it easily and then lastly for people who are really concerned is that the manufacturing process is well vetted it was designed and invented by me uh, we utilize two different countries two different facilities to generate the private key entropy elements uh, that go on to the wallets. Part of it is in China. Part of it is in the United States. And because of that, we are we're, we can guarantee that sort of supply chain integrity. And uh, and then when you get your wallet, um, you have full control of the private keys. And in fact, if you don't if you don't open peel open and and utilize and create your own private key, your the private key for that wallet has never been instantiated. Has never been created before. So. Um, yeah, I think that's the most important aspect, right? Now, we all know in the industry, you know, exchange hacks, they happen pretty often, almost every month, like you said before. Wallet hacks, obviously, you know, they don't really happen. You know, many wallet companies, even Ballet, don't hold the user's private keys. But there are cases where customer data can get hacked or leaked out. So, for example, last year, Ledger, their comp the, um, part of their customer database was hacked leaked out, um, leaking some customer information such as their address, their name, and yada, 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 yada. Does that ever concern you? I, I, I know, like, like oh. I said before, Ballet does not keep the user's private keys, um, but 
you know, customer databases can get hacked. Yeah. So, so it's, it's different issues, right? So let's, let's talk about that. Um, it was widely known that Ledger had a breach of its databases and the customer data got, got hacked. Uh, and in fact, circulating out there in the dark net and people were trying to take advantage of the customer database and so on. So, so we take, you know, we, we make harder wallets, we sell to customers. So we take very extra precaution against that. And by the way, every maker of every product who sells things and who ships things to customers have that problem, have that risk, right? Well, I don't care if it's Ledger, if it's Amazon, if it's Microsoft and any, right? Th there's always that risk, right? Even banks. So, so that's why I say there's no such thing as trustless. In the end, you always have to trust the merchant, the vendor, the, the commercial company uh, in terms of safeguarding your privacy, safeguarding your anonymity, safeguarding the fact that your customer, you know, whether it's buying, uh, buying medic medicine, right, or, or, or whatever. So, so you mentioned the, the customer data hack, but I think more importantly, I, I, I disagree with your early point. I don't know if you said it clearly. Um, there had been wallet company hacks. Okay, so I, I want to point these out. People may not be aware of this. Um, so when a wallet claims to be, you know, open standards and so on and so forth, you, you have to trust them. And, and I mentioned this because in the past, there are companies where you trust them, but it, they can still screw up and they can mess you up. So for example, blockchain.com, blockchain.org website, they have a, they have a online wallet, uh, uh, blockchain.com wallet. And for a while, a few years ago, for a while, they were generating wallet private keys using a flawed or buggy algorithm where the entropy was not truly randomized across the space of the whole spectrum. Hmm. In other words, if you think about private keys in the end, private keys come from a space from a, from a, you're pick, basically picking a locker in a gazillion lockers. And the idea is you hope that no one knows which locker you picked, right? And we're talking about a, a uh, what's the word? A unit space of uh, 256 bits or maybe 1,024 bits. And these are, these are, again, more than all the number of atoms and uh, in the universe, okay? So, so it's, it's a huge, huge difficult problem. How do you, how do you, how, how do you crack that? You can't crack it, right? However, if if your wallet service is always picking lockers from a certain region, then it becomes very easy to scan for all the lockers potentially in that region, and then you get hacked that way. So there was a well-known hack on the blockchain.com wallet where they were picking entropy. Uh, it was by flawed algorithm. It was a bug in the algorithm where they're picking entropy from a no, from a much, much smaller set. And then hackers were able to brute force and guess all the wallets and they stole the funds that way. Wow. So again, th this is not intentional. Interesting. Mm -hmm. It's not intentional, yet it was a bug. And because the users trusted blockchain.com, um, many users lost their funds. Do you know how many Bitcoins were? were I don't know. I don't know whether there was a settlement, but it was a well-known issue and they obviously had to fix that really fast. Uh, and uh, what's lost is lost. They can get it, cannot get it back. So, so that's my that's my point. Saying you know, even reputable services, whether it was open source or not, it doesn't matter if it was open source. If it was a bug, it's a bug, right? You had to trust them, and in this case, the trust ended up being in failure. Okay. 
Another example is you have another wallet. I forgot the name of the brand, but it's very stupid. These wallets supposed to create entropy and, and get and create those uh, 24 words for this recovery seed, right? These 24 seed words. This is again, the BIP39, BIP44 standard. They did that properly, but what then? What? But then they did something else very stupid, which is they had these words. For some reason, some software engineer that decided, oh, wouldn't it be great. We should spell check that, and they threw that list of twenty-four words against a Google dictionary. They made a call, you know, that software made a web service call to the internet, to Google spell check dictionary or whatever, and to make sure all those twenty-four words are spelled correctly. Well. Everyone would know that the, the original 24 words are, are of course spelled correctly because the dictionary is only 2,048 words. That's the technology behind the BIP39. There's a 2,048 word dictionary of English words that are suitable for that thing. But the engineer didn't know that. He tried to be, he or she tried to be smart and say, let me spell check this. And normally you think spell check, that's fine. If it's already a, uh, a non misspelled word, if I spell check it, it won't make a difference. Well, in the end, it didn't make a difference to the spelling. But what did make a difference is because you're, you're asking for the spell check, there's a permanent record on the internet in the Google servers, which words came over for the spell check. If you give them these 24 words for a spell check, Google would have an account log in their servers that says these 24 words came over for the spell check. And that's a fundamental fatal design flaw because Google and all the ISPs in between, all the routers and hops in between would see all of that traffic and you're essentially giving people your money. So this is another example of good intention gone bad. You're trusting the company, yet they failed you, right? So my point is even with ballet, you're trusting us, right? But the difference is that I have 10 years of experience in this field, right? When I designed the process for manufacturing these things, you know, we have lots and lots of years of experience. I've, I've seen too many mistakes and we, we, you know, we're trying our best not to make these mistakes, right? And obviously, you know, you, you have to trust a company and in the end, uh, we, we stand behind the product and the security of our products. And to defend Ballet Security and how you you know promote how Ballet is secure and in some parts you need to trust the company, um, and with BIP thirty eight being a very you know uh, strong and secure encryption standard that's been around for you know about ten years. Last year, I know you made an open call to the community to basically you know hackers come try to hack me, right? So so your your hacking challenge take Bobby's Bitcoin. Talk yeah. more about that. Yeah, yeah. So. It's uh, a friend of mine decided to suggest that idea. I thought it was a great idea. So our wallets fundamentally, uh, it's a cold storage wallet. Our private keys are not created yet, but we give you the entropy for the two private keys. So we generate the entropy material that you need to create your own private key. And one of them we call it the encrypted private key, the other call it wallet passphrase. But the reality is these two pieces have never been used together. Okay, it's, it, it um, so, you need both pieces. This is called one piece A, the other piece B, the A and B. The A and B need to come together to make the C part, the private key. So if you only have the A, but you don't know the B, it's practically impossible for you to brute force and guess the B part and vice versa. If I give you the B part, for you to guess the A part, it's practically impossible. So what I've done last year is I put up my own money. I 
put out two Bitcoins in total. I put one Bitcoin on one wallet where I reveal to you the A part, but you have to guess the B part. Mm. And on the other wallet, I put on another one Bitcoin, and this time I reveal to you the B part, and it's a guess the A part. Okay, and that has been online. Uh, I've, 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 I've shared on my tweet, on my Twitter account, I've shared on the website. Go to uh, takebobbiesbitcoin.com. Uh, there's a running clock that says how long this challenge has been on there. And the value of two Bitcoin is close to $100,000 now. And it hasn't been hacked. It has not been stolen, even after we give you one of the two revealing parts. And for, for all other value wallets, both parts are hidden. Not just, not just one of them is hidden, right? So this is an extreme example of us giving you, uh, you know, half of the equation, yet you still can't solve the puzzle, right? And, and to take a step back, in the last year and a half, two years of operating ballet, I can I can happily tell you we've had zero hacks for security, we've had zero uh, misuses, right? You, we we our, our wallet is so simple to use. There's just no room for making a user mistake, and um, there's been no hacks. Now we have over two hundred fifty million dollars of user customer assets stored on ballet wallets worldwide, and they're all in users' customer hands. We as a company have no access to it. We're not a custodial service. That's why we don't have to get regulated. That's why we don't plan to, to, be, to be regulated. And, and I'm, I'm tremendously proud of that. I, I can sleep at night, uh, know that my customers have their private keys. They are safe from attackers because they're keeping their cryptocurrency storage in cold storage. Um, and I don't think the same can be said of other hardware wallet makers where there's been known very, very well-known cases of people losing their money in other hard, cold store, hardware cold storage wallet makers due to customer misuse, mm -hmm. right? So it's, with, it's very sad, yeah. So with digital security, crypto security of the ballet wallets, obviously well explained, um, but for users and for customers, you know, having the ballet wallet, there is another layer of security, which is physical security. Uh, for the community, what would you suggest for them is the best way to store their ballet wallets? So yeah, so you make a good point. So we, we've turned, Ballet relies on physical security. And this is unusual for wallet makers, okay? We, have we, we decided that humans, I realize that humans don't have the know-how, generally speaking, okay, to how to safeguard digital information. Because digital information has always been shared and made copies of replicated, right? Whether it's photos, you know, social media, all we know about is making copies, whether it's MP3 files and so on and so forth. Whereas with crypto, cryptocurrency, we really need to safeguard digital information. That's a very hard task. That's why Ballet, the original concept is, let's turn this digital cryptocurrency stuff that's purely virtual into physical form, which makes it really easy for regular people to safeguard and safe keep. Okay, that's the premise. The premise is we turn something very virtual and digital into something physical. So when you have a Ballet Real Series wallet and you load it with Bitcoin and or other cryptocurrency, that wallet in front of you, you could feel it, you could touch it, you could hold it, you could even smell it, right? And it's very sturdy and it's hefty design. And that is your cryptocurrency. That's what we call it the real series, the real Bitcoin, the real Ethereum, the real Litecoin, whatever. Right, so that is your cryptocurrency. Don't lose it. 
right? We've turned it into something physical. It becomes a bearer asset, something you can give to other people as a gift, or you could keep it yourself and store it in your safe. Don't lose it. And for most people in the world, not losing something physically is easy. They know how to safeguard it. Treat it like a piece of gold. Treat it like cash. Treat it like your jewelry. Treat it like your family heirlooms, right? So in that sense, it's very easy for people to not lose it. Now, if you lose it, well, well, then you lost it, hmm. right? Whether it's gold or cash or jewelry or diamonds, then your, hey, too bad. Your phone, your glasses. Yeah, anything you lose, then you lose, right? Then, then you're just uh, a, you know, that that's just too bad. Yeah. But what we hate as a society is when we think we own something online or digital, and then it gets hacked and taken away from us when we haven't done anything. That's what's frustrating, and that's what we're preventing by telling people to use a cold storage solution like Ballet. Well, I'm sure the audience can appreciate this podcast and you know, understanding you, know, uh, you elaborating more on the Ballet security, where your experiences lies into how the Ballet walls are secure today and how they're manufactured. Um, on the last note before we wrap up this podcast, also about security, but not pertaining per se to the Ballet wallets, is this notion that the media loves to play around with. What happens if quantum computing hacks Bitcoin? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so quantum computing, by the way, is a, is a general concept that affects not only Bitcoin, but the whole internet, the whole communication infrastructure all around the world. Anything that's computer related, anything that's communications related, has a notion of security, encryption, you know, uh, you know, so the whole modern cryptography, digital cryptography system, algorithms, you know, encryption, is all based on on the the branch of mathematics called cryptography. And in theory, if quantum computing comes, that can be rendered sort of obsolete. We have to upgrade to what they call quantum proof algorithms, quantum proof security. Okay, so if and when we come near that point where quantum computing really threatens the modern internet and or the cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin and everything, I think the whole world will need to upgrade in mass, kind of like the Y2K effort. If people remember 21 years ago, 22 years ago, there was a massive effort all around the world to safeguard the old school mainframe computers from the Y2K bug, where there's a two-year digit rollover to the year 2000, mm. right? Uh, youngsters today don't know about that, but but there was a whole effort. You know, I even participated myself at Yahoo, doing uh, Y2K upgrades for the software. Right. But nonetheless, um, if it happens, if and when quantum computing happens, it's not just Bitcoin, it's not just ballet wallets, it's a whole industry, and it's it's everything from cell phones to websites to email accounts to your home security system to IP television to Netflix, the whole world we need to upgrade. And it may be a massive effort. We don't know how soon it will come. Uh, it could come as soon as 20 years from now. It, it could take another 80 years. So it's not something I, I have a particular uh, accurate sort of prediction on when that happens. But I can assure you, if and when that happens, it's not a ballet or a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency issue. It's a global issue. So we will all have to do it. All wallet makers, all websites, all accounts, you know, all devices, stuff like that yeah this question is i think it is becoming just more and more of like a hypothetical question and i think when that time does come i think for the most part the the industry and the infrastructure that we have today for digital security will be adaptable 
Yeah, yeah. We, we have to upgrade. The, the, it's, it's, it'll be a Y2K effort. We just have to upgrade. Everyone yeah. has to upgrade. Okay, well, thank you for your time in this podcast, uh, speaking about the security and the trust nature of ballet and trust in general. Um, next week, we will be talking more about the different products from ballet and the different services amongst ballet. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Thank you again, Bobby. Great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation with Bobby Lee, let us know your takeaways in the comments section below. Also, please feel free to share it on social media and tag us accordingly based on our social media handles in the video description. And if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at Ballet Crypto to stay on top of all the latest happenings with our wallets, news, promotions, and educational content. On the next episode of this podcast series, we'll be chatting again with Bobby Lee on the different products in ballet. So please stay tuned for that episode to come out by subscribing to our YouTube channel.